0: Let's open our Bibles to the Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 tonight. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3. Tonight we'll we'll cover verses 14 through 15, but but, um, we may say some things about the other verses as well. Ephesians, chapter 3. As we arrive at verse 14, Paul is actually getting back to what he started in verse 1. In fact, he'll say the same thing. If you look at verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then in my Bible, there's a dash. There ought to be something like that in your Bible as well. Because from verses 2 to verses 13 of chapter 3, Paul goes, goes, uh, goes on a divinely inspired digression. And this divinely inspired digression has purpose to it. And there's an incredible doctrine that's revealed in this digression but when we get to verse 14, he picks up on what he started in, in verse one. Uh, he began there for this reason, and then you see that very same phrase in verse 14. Now, the digression concerned the mystery. And this mystery is not a mystery that, uh, that we oftentimes think about when we think of who'd done it and, and, and such as that. This, the Greek term "musterion" means a truth that is pre, that was not previously known. This is not, and this is very important, it's more important than we might think, because this is foundational. The truth of the mystery is not something that could have been perceived or understood by a diligent search of the Scriptures. So it's not as though Paul could have opened up his old, the scrolls of the Old Testament and looked very, very thoroughly at the Old Testament and discovered this mystery. This is not the same kind of thing. So this is not like Sherlock Holmes, who looked at all the clues and then was able to determine what this mystery was. No, it's not that at all. In fact, Paul could have looked and looked and looked. Peter could have. James could have. They could have looked all they wanted to, and there weren't going to be any clues about this mystery. This is something new and special. The content of the mystery is made known in verse 6, but the thing that I want to stress before we get any further is that this, this mystery mentioned in Ephesians, was hidden in God in ages past. Now, God knew it, but it was like it's a blank slate to the apostles as they're looking in this direction before it was made known to them by, by divine revelation. So a diligent search of the Old Testament would, or even an exercise of reason, for example, none of those would have revealed this mystery. It was revealed by direct divine disclosure. The, the, the content of the mystery found in verse 6 is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, that the Gentiles are fellow members of the body, and that the Gentiles are fellow participants in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now we've studied that this two weeks previously to this, but I want to make sure you realize this is, a, is this as though God was taking a piece of wallpaper and peeling it back, and behind the wallpaper was this truth that was there the whole time, but it could not have been perceived from a diligent search of the scriptures. You, you see what I mean. This had to be revealed. This was divine revelation. And the scriptures tell us that Paul wasn't the only one that got it. He was given the, resp- the primary responsibility for disseminating it. But he wasn't the only one that received this. The other apostles and the, the text tells us the prophets of the New Testament received it as well. Now in verse 14. He'll repeat the same words again for this reason. And this is a reference back to chapter 2. Verses 11 through 22. You remember chapter 2? Two? Chapter 2 talked about our new position in Christ individually and then corporately. And Paul is making a case for the fact that we ought to get along. We ought to, there ought to be some unity within the body of Christ. And one of the strongest points he makes there is that we're all saved the same way. We're all saved by grace through faith apart from works. If any of us was saved by works, then we'd have a reason to boast, but not before God. And, and Paul's making it clear that none of us have any reason to boast whatsoever. Now, while chapter 3, verses 2 through 13 was one of those long sentences, actually, guess what? There's eight long sentences. This is another one and you might, you might have guessed. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 19 is, one, is a long sentence as well. I believe it's the fifth one, in fact. Verses 14 through 21, though, are a prayer. And this is Paul's second prayer in the letter. In the first prayer that we studied, Paul petitioned God that the Ephesians might know God so that they might fully appreciate three things. That they would know God so that they would fully appreciate three things. First, the hope of his calling. Second, the magnitude of his gracious inheritance. And third, the surpassing greatness of his power. So in the first prayer, Paul prays that that the Ephesians might know God so that they might fully appreciate these three things. And by the way, it's not just the Ephesians. He wants us to appreciate it as well. Paul wants you and he wants me to appreciate the hope of our calling, the magnitude of his gracious inheritance, and then finally the surpassing greatness of his power. You know, it's interesting to me how you see some people, they don't care a whit about some relative. And as soon as they find out that they're in that relative's will, all of a sudden they start being real nice to them. Have you ever seen that? I hope it had not happened to you. But, but it, ha- it does happen from time to time because they think they're going to get a big inheritance. Well, maybe they will and maybe they won't. Sometimes great uncles and great aunts wise up at the last minute and write people like that out of their wills if they just realize that they're just looking to them for an inheritance. But even if that great aunt or great uncle is a billionaire and you think you're going to get a tenth of their estate maybe, that's nothing compared to the inheritance that we have from God. So if there's anybody that we ought to be, if you'll excuse the phrase, kissing up to, it's not a great aunt or a great uncle. It's God. He's the one. He's the one. And the text tells us two ways. First, we have an inheritance from God, but the text also tells us that we are God's inheritance. That's how much he values us. He considers us his inheritance. So it's a wonderful thing. But in short, in this first prayer, Paul desires that we have a deeper relationship with God, or a deeper, uh, deeper relationship with God, not just the Ephesians, but us as well, and then a deeper experience in the Christian life based upon that deeper relationship. Really, what it is, we know God better, so we have a deeper relationship. Once we know him better, have a decent relationship, then we live consistently with that which we know to be the truth. Where have you heard that before? That's essentially James' message as well, practicing what we say we believe. That was the first prayer. The primary focus of the second prayer is that the Ephesians, and by extension, all believers, so this is very personal for us as well, might be, to use Paul's words, strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, in the inner being. The desired outcome being that we are united in an experiential way to Christ's love. But we'll see, we won't study it tonight, but we'll see in our study next time that this is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Each of us, the moment we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, was indwelt permanently with the Holy Spirit. It didn't happen in the law in the age of Moses. It did not happen in the previous dispensation. That's why, that's why David prays in Psalm 51, the Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. There's a reason why he prays that, because he seems to be frightened that God's going to do just that. And he would have had a good reason to be a little frightened that God would do just that. If you think back to the life of David, you know why? He had done just that to David's predecessor when David's predecessor had messed up. And David doesn't want to have that happen to him because he saw when the Holy Spirit was removed from him, so was the kingdom. Because he wasn't going to rule without the Holy Spirit's ministry, not in the way that God wanted that nation to be ruled Well, we don't have to be concerned with with sinning and the Holy Spirit being removed from us. The Holy Spirit never leaves us. Now, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that's maybe a different thing. But the, the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit never leaves us. Think about this, because if it did, you'd have no motivation to confess the sin in the first place. You see, it's the Holy Spirit that's motivating you the whole time. You need to confess that sin and get back into fellowship with me. So while you may not be in fellowship with God, God never leaves you. We may walk out of the relationship. But God never goes anywhere. He stays right there. So the primary focus of this second prayer is that we might be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. In, the, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he speaks about the fruit of the spirit as opposed to the deeds of the flesh. The fruit of the spirit in the singular, and then there's many things that are at, listed after that. But the primary fruit of the spirit from which everything else flows is love. Exactly. And so the message is going to be similar here. The desired outcome is that we would be united in an experiential way in Christ's love. Now see, he still hasn't changed the overarching direction of this letter. He's still writing this letter so that we might have unity. Not just in the church universal, although that's certainly true, but in local churches as well. This local church. Now, in in my view, Paul is speaking in, in in terms of his message, to all believers everywhere. But the the application certainly is to the local church as well. So I say that so that you'll understand. Paul's not just saying, he's not praying this so that believers at Pine Valley would get along with one another quite well, thank you very much, but despise believers that go to other churches. See, that's not the point. This is an overarching thing, because it wasn't just believers at Pine Valley that were saved by grace through faith. You see, it's not just believers at Pine Valley that, are, that have a common inheritance, that are part of the same body. Why don't you turn that back on? That are part of the same body. It's believers everywhere. Now, granted, it's hard sometimes to, be, to fellowship with believers that are not walking in fellowship with God or with, with you, and in ter- especially in terms of a doctrinal way. Jesus, in fact, said that we are to, he wanted us to be one as, as he and the Father, one, but sanctified in the truth. So it's a difficult challenge sometimes, but the idea that Paul is preaching is that all the church with a capital C would be able to realize that we're all going to heaven, and we're all going to heaven for the same reason, and it's not because we're great. It's because God loved us. And that sounds almost like a, a bit of a modeling kind of an idea. In fact, sometimes Christians, I think, take certain ideas, and they, they so misapply them or they apply them in such a silly way sometimes that the rest of us stay away from it. Well, we don't want to stay away from love because some Christians have gone around saying, oh, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, and you know good and well they don't. I know there's some silliness in Christianity today, but that doesn't mean we avoid the reality that, uh, that is being discarded in, in the middle of that silliness. Now, this prayer is going to be divided into three parts. First, Paul will express the respect that is due to God. When he prays, he understands to whom he is speaking. And this is, in my view, huge. Uh, This may be one of the things that is hindering your your prayer life, and you may not even know it. Because the one to whom we're praying is the sovereign God of the universe. And every time we open up our thoughts or our mouth, we need to realize, especially in public prayer, we are not praying to the people that are in the room. We're praying to God, the very sovereign God of the universe. And when we, when we kneel by our bed or sit in our chair at our desk and we say in our minds, our Father, we need to realize to whom we are speaking. So Paul is going to express the respect that is due to God, and we'll see how he does that. And that's verses 14 through 15, our topic for tonight. Second, there will be the, the, the petition specifically expressed in verses 16 through 19. That will be our topic next week. And then finally, there is an incredible doxology, and I would say so incredible, it's worth memorizing. If you're, if you're inclined to, to memorize a scripture, to write it on a note card, don't read it in your car. That's just as bad as texting. But, but keep it with you in your pocket and read it as often as you can. This certainly, verses 20 through 21, are an incredible doxology in which God is praised. So you see how this is going to work. First, he recognizes to whom he is speaking. Second, he makes the petition. And then, lastly, he praises the God to whom he has made the petition. You see, now this is not a, pr- a prescribed way of prayer. He's, Paul is not saying this is what you have to pray, but we could learn a little something from it. You know, if, if, Jesus' disciples one time said, "Hey, Lord, would you please teach us how to pray?" We can kind of listen in on how the apostle Paul prays, and, it's, and it could certainly be beneficial to us. So the first, uh, the first aspect of this, in verses 14 and 15. Respect is given to God. The verses read this way. In fact, what I'd like to do is read the entirety of the prayer so that we get the, the, the flavor of the whole prayer first, and then we'll come back and look at verses 14 and 15 in a little bit more detail tonight. For this reason, again, he's picking up what he started in verse 1. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit, In the inner man. We mentioned that phrase a moment ago. Verse 17 So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, those verses are just jammed, packed with incredible theology, and we're going to have to unpack those in a way that's fair to this text. We certainly don't want to cover that in a rapid way so that we miss the point. But you see words like strengthened, words like spirit, words like love. And then finally this phrase at the end, filled up to all the fullness of God. Then in verses 20 and 21, this doxology, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's worth, I think, memorizing. Now, Paul's bowing the knees before his father. This posture of, of bending one's knee in prayer is one of several postures for praying that are seen in scriptures. We, we see standing, kneeling, laying prostrate on the ground. The various positions of individuals praying, though, are descriptions. They're not prescriptions. Paul's not saying here if you want your prayer to be heard, you need to bow your knee. They're descriptions, though. In John chapter 17, presumably standing, and this was, this was the prayer that Jesus made ending the upper room discourse or on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, presumably standing, Jesus. the text says Jesus lifted his eyes toward heaven, and then he began to pray. In the Garden of Gethsemane, though, just a short time later, the text tells us that Jesus knelt down to pray. Even Jesus prayed in different ways, in different methods. Daniel petitioned God with regard to his prayer for the people with fasting and in sackcloth and in ashes. C.S. Lewis was said to have had as part of his nightly routine he would put on his nightclothes, he would kneel by his bed, he said his prayers on his knees and then he got under the covers and went to sleep. That was his nightly routine. Believers throughout the ages have assumed various positions in prayer, various postures in prayer, and there does seem to be, there does seem to be some correlation between the level of emotion of the petitioner and the posture of the one offering the prayer. You see what I'm saying? There does seem in Scripture to be at least some degree of correlation. Now, it's not a one-for-one, one and it's not a solid thing, <coughs> nothing that we could make a, a doctrine or a theology out of, but there does seem to be some correlation between the posture of the petitioner and the intensity of the situation. But having said that, we can't be dogmatic here, and, and we should not prescribe what the scriptures do not. It does seem that one's posture in prayer does seem to be a matter of individual choice based upon the particular situation. It's not something that we can or should legislate. Personally, and I just speak for myself, I've prayed with my face to the floor. I've prayed on my knees. I've prayed standing. I've prayed sitting. I've prayed when I'm out for a walk in Memorial Park. I've prayed when I could jog. I've prayed while I was jogging in Memorial Park. If I did that now, I wouldn't have any energy to, to have a thoughtful prayer. But I've prayed with my hands folded. I've prayed with my hands in my pocket. I've prayed with my hands lifted up to heaven in the Old Testament way that Old Testament saints have done. I've, I've done all that, and, you know, and I can could, I could see the correlation. There are times when I have prayed with my face flat on the floor. Now, that, those kind of prayers were, were when I was in, in great stress and the intensity was, was of, of such a nature that it, it was almost drove me to my face. There's time when I've prayed on my knees. Most of the time when I pray, I'm sitting at my desk or in a chair or, or you know driving down the road. It's probably a good thing to pray when you're driving down the road, it's especially for safety, especially if you're over here at Telephone and Broad. People don't pay attention to that light as much as they should, but the point I'm trying to make is that one's physical position in prayer may reflect a degree of intensity. It may reflect a state of mind, but once again, we need to be careful and to not slip over into legalism when we call someone else to pray. You see my point? You you may say, well, listen, I I pray uh, on my knees every night before I go to bed. If you don't do that, then you're not the Christian you should be. Well, we don't know that. Some families pray uh, holding hands around the table. Others don't. I don't really believe it reflects a level of spirituality. It reflects a level of taste for that family. And when it when, when holds hands, perhaps sometimes that reflects a, a, um, a unity, uh, a bond in Christianity. But it doesn't mean that we should impose that. You see what I'm saying? We don't want to impose something that the scriptures uh, do not. One thing that we can be closer, though, to prescribing. Again, the, the position of kneeling is something that's de- described, not prescribed. I hope you can see the difference. It's described, not prescribed. But, but there is one thing with regard to this passage tonight that we can be a little closer to prescribing, and that, be, that being the member of the Godhead that is being addressed. Now, I, and, and even here, I'm not going to be f- finely dogmatic about it. But I think we can be a lot closer to prescribing this than we can the position that is, uh, that is in prayer. By the way, I think by, by Paul bowing the knee to the Father, this is, this is an intense prayer for him. This is a serious prayer. He's taken time. He's probably gone off somewhere else th- where he's by himself, and he has bowed the knee to the Father. So I think Paul is intense as he's praying for these people. You know, sometimes it's hard for us to, to really understand it, but Paul gives a list in one of his letters to the Corinthians. Remember that? He, he gives a list of all the troubles that he went through. All, all the pains and all the beatings and all the sleepless nights and the, and the hardships. And then at the end of that list, he says something like this. He says, and, and on top of that, there's the daily care for all the churches. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. He really cares about these Philippian believers. I mean, these Ephesian believers. He cares about the Philippians too. But he really cares about these people. And so I think that's reflected in his posture. But now when he, when, when, when he gets to who he's praying to them, I think we're closer to a prescription here, not just a description. We're a lot closer to a prescription. With the exception of Jesus' statement to the disciples in the upper room, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. With that with that one exception, it's the standard of the New Testament to address our prayers to God the Father. Again, I want to be I want to be careful here. Every now and then you'll hear someone. Address a prayer to dear Jesus, whether it be on the radio or in our own church. Uh, I don't want you to, to to open your eyes and look at them like they're some sort of heretic. You know, God the Father and God the Son are in such a unity that the prayer is uh, God's going to hear it. It's it's not as though they just committed some heresy. However, it does seem, with that one exception, and I do think that one exception in the upper room discourse, that there are some reasons why Christ made that upset. Uh, that exception, to the disciples that he was speaking to, about a very specific thing that he was speaking to them about. But aside from that, it's the standard in the New Testament to address our prayers to the Father. And the one place that I think that we can turn to, even more so than just observing the Apostle Paul's prayers, is where I'd like for us to turn now, and we'll be there for just a moment. So if you have a Bible, turn back over now to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is part of the most famous sermon that was ever preached. And no, that's not Chuck's sermon from last Easter Sunday morning, as good as I'm sure that was. No, this is Jesus' sermon that he gave, uh, Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, we find as part of this broader Sermon on the Mount what is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Now, in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is contrasting the hypocritical and, if I, could, if I could say, the mechanical and maybe even the legalistic modes of prayer that the Pharisees were offering. He's contrasting that with what God considers acceptable in prayer, just to, just to set the tone here. He's, he's contrasting the way the Pharisees did it in their mechanical and legalistic way to the way that God finds acceptable. In verses 5 and 6, let me start there. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Actually, speaking to a broader audience, but here it seems as though he's narrowed in a bit. And when you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites. It's interesting here. Jesus is assuming assuming they're going to pray. He's not commanding them to pray. He's assuming they're going to. It's a normal part of our spiritual life, and it's one way, I think, that we can gauge the health of our spiritual life. You know, there's a lot of ways we want to say, well, how am I doing? One of the ways that we can test ourselves, and only you would know, and this is not really between husbands and wives. It's not between pastor and congregation. This is just between you and the Lord. Only you know. But, but how intense really has your prayer life been lately? Don't, don't, don't shake your head up and down or anything else. Just think about it between you and your father. And that's one of the ways that you make engage the, the level of fellowship you're really having with God. I know this is an old uh, it's an old illustration, but I think it still rings true. Do you remember when you first met the person that you ended up marrying? And and perhaps you'd known them for a week or two. You just couldn't wait to talk to them. If they were to send you a, a little note in the mail and you saw that, and you had a whole bunch of other things there too, you th- you threw everything else aside and you ripped open that one real quick. I want to see exactly what they say. You parsed every word, didn't you? I mean, I certainly did. And it, when, when I started dating the lady who would later become my wife, I couldn't wait to get off in the evenings and run to church and see her. I wanted to go to church, too. But I, wanted to, I went to church to see her, cause, cause I, and I, we would stay there in that parking lot afterwards, and we would just talk and talk and talk until this big, tall guy named Doug would come and run us off. <laughs> he said, I've got to lock these things now. Y'all are going to have to go somewhere else because I just couldn't wait to talk to her. And it seems as though she was having the same attitude toward me because i was i was falling deep more more deeply in love with her now sometimes as time goes on that kind of fades away i don't know why it does but it it should get even more intense and then husbands and wives look at each other saying you know we're not we're not communicating as we should and then if there is if it's a healthy marriage then you start that communication back up again well i just think one of the ways you can tell if your relationship with god is as healthy as it should be do you set aside time for prayer and then you can't wait to get to that time so you can actually open your thoughts and your, your, uh, your mind toward God or your voice toward God and talk with him for a bit. You are his child. You're the child of the creator of the universe. Now, I want to ask a piercing question. Do you really believe that? Or is this, is this just some sort of linguistic game that we're playing with each other? Do you really believe that you are the child of of the God of the universe and that he has saved you by grace through faith and that he loves you so deeply that he sent his beloved son to die for you? Or have we said those words so many times that it goes in one ear and out the other and we really don't think about it? I know sometimes I need to stop and pause and take a break and say just exactly what am I doing here and make sure that my prayer life with God doesn't become something mechanical. That's what Jesus is going to speak against here. He's going to speak against the mechanical type of spiritual life. You know what Jesus is speaking against here? He's speaking against the same type of thing that would cause a husband to run down to Randall's, you know, at eleven o'clock the night before his wife's birthday, run in there before they close, just get to the birthday list, see birthday for wives, and grab the first card that comes along, sign it on the way home and give it to her. There's not a lot of thought put into that. And guess what? Most of the time they can tell, you know, when you do that. And they may act like they appreciate it, but they know good and well that you didn't spend a lot of time or a thought in, in picking that out. So let's don't get mechanical with our spouses, and we sure don't want to be mechanical when it comes to God. When you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites. Now, the hypocrites he's referring to are the religious people of the day. You wouldn't think that the re- Jesus would put down the religious people, but that's exactly who he went after because they were doing it in a mechanical, legalistic, hypocritical way. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners, in order to be seen by men, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. You know, it's said that what sometimes these people would do, they would be crossing a street or an alley, and it would come time to pray, and they would stop. Middle of the street, they would lift up their arms toward heaven, and they would, they would begin to pray. And then everybody that, everybody that was in that street would have to go around them because they couldn't go to the other side of the street and kind of go off to the side and, and pray. They had to do it in front of everybody. So when people walked by, they said, oh, look at that guy see, that guy over there, man, he must just be a spiritual giant. He won't even walk to the other side of the street to pray. He's going to stand in the middle of the street to pray. And isn't he wonderful? Well, Jesus says, no, he's not wonderful. He's a doggone hypocrite. And Jesus got mad at these times. I mean, he had divine anger. I mean, it was righteous anger. But he didn't care for this hypocrisy. These people were not representing him properly. And And they did it so that they could be seen by men. Ever heard public prayers that seemed to be prayed so that they would be heard only by men? Ooh, that makes you cringe, doesn't it? I mean, it makes me cringe. Pastors do it all the time, by the way. I'll admit that. We do it because what happens is in our closing prayer, we realize there's some major point that we left out of the sermon. <laughs> so we go back and say, and Father, I do want you to make sure that they understand that my point three, which I forgot to say in the sermon. <laughs> That's a little pastoral secret. Don't tell anybody that. But we all do it from time to time. But our prayers should be directed toward God, not so that other people think we're eloquent or just a wonderful spiritual giant. And the people who give the best public prayers, you can tell they're praying to God. And they couldn't fake that in a million years. They're comfortable praying to God. Now, I don't want you to be intimidated to pray out loud. You don't. As a matter of fact, that's the last thing I want you to be. Just You're talking to your father. Just talk to him. Just pray to him. So he says in verse 5, Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. You see, they think that they're going to get a reward in heaven. Jesus is saying, uh-uh. No, they're not going to get a reward in heaven. Their reward is here right now. That person that walked by and said, oh, boy, isn't he great? That's it. That's their reward. That's it. That's all. No more for them. So they think they've got all this eternal stuff coming. They've got nothing coming. And this is Jesus speaking here. In verse 6, but when you pray, go into your inner room. And when you've shut the door, pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees you in secret, he'll repay you. So you see the the contrast? Instead of praying out in public so that everybody sees what a wonderful Pharisee you are, what I want you to do, my disciples, is I want you to get out of the middle of the street, go to a private place, go go where you can have some quiet and concentration, that's where I want you to pray. And even though nobody else can see you, nobody else has any idea of the content of your prayer or how eloquent you are, God knows. You see the difference? And God's going to repay you. So do you want your reward from men? Do you want that attaboy from men? Or do you want that attaboy from God? I'll take the attaboy from God. And that's what he, Jesus wants his disciples to do. Now, in verses uh, 7 and 8. Jesus is going to give a warning about repetitious prayer, or I'm going to call it mechanical prayer. In verse 7, when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition. Key idea, there be meaningless repetition. As the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, don't be like them. You see the contrast in these two verses. First, what they do, and then what I want you to do. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask him. So what Jesus is saying here is don't fall into these practices that these, frankly, these pagans do, these Pharisees. Um, these repetitious prayers, relentlessly prayers, these were the prayers that characterized the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Now, the interesting thing is here that, that Jesus himself prayed long prayers. Luke chapter 6, verse 12 tells us that Jesus prayed all night long. Jesus repeated himself in prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays at least three times. Uh, he also advocated persistence in prayer, Luke chapter 18. So that's not what Jesus is criticizing, but he's criticizing long prayers just for the sake of being long-winded. You know, the most, ex- the most famous example of a long-winded prayer came from the Church of the Open Door, J. Vernon McGee. I don't know how long ago it was. Were you there, Jerry? No, okay. I'm <laughs> just kidding you. I'm just kidding you. But uh, but you've heard about this prayer. Well, actually, I didn't hear Vernon McGee tell it, tell it, but I heard somebody that, that knew Vernon McGee tell this story, and maybe you've heard it too. There was a fellow that was doing the public prayer in between the songs, and he went on and, on and on and on and on and on some more to where finally Dr. McGee got up from where he was sitting, and he says, while Brother So-and-So over here finishes his prayer, let's the rest of us turn to hymn number 405 and stand as we sing. Now, that was old Jay Vernon. He's about the only one that could probably pull that off. And again, I wasn't there. I wasn't there when that happened, but I did talk to somebody who knew Dr. McGee really well, and they said, that is a true story. At least that's what I was told. Now, so so we see this comparison and contrast here again. Don't just do this rote, mechanical, assuming that because a prayer is long, it's effective. Maybe you need to pray all night, and maybe you need to get right to the point. If I tried to pray all night... At night, I'd be asleep by about eleven: thirty, <laughs> maybe sooner than that.'m going to pray if I'm going to pray for a long period of time, it better be during the day, because I'm not used to staying up all night. But Jesus prayed all night. Jesus would go away to a lonely place, place to pray. We see that in the scriptures time and time and again. Jesus considered prayer very important. Now, to get to the point of tonight's message, though, we see in verse nine. This is a prescription for prayer. We also see this come up again in Luke when it's, it's a little different situation, but, but Jesus is speaking about some of the same things in Luke. In verse 9, pray then in, in this way. Now, that's an imperative, so this is not simply descriptive. Do you see the difference? This is not just Jesus describing how this person prayed. He's telling them, you pray like this. Now, but before we go into the one detail I want to pull from this passage let me say this, when I was in high school playing football, we would always pray this prayer before we went out to the games. last thing we would do. The coach pulled us all together, and we'd pull in a circle, and we would pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know what? That was about as meaningless as anything could be. First of all, it was just rote repetition. Second of all, none of us were thinking about the prayer. All of us were thinking about our responsibilities that we had just a minute ago and just going to knock somebody's head in the dirt and And all these things that that you do, (laughs) Uh, but uh, Jesus is not saying when you pray, you need to pray this exact prayer with these exact words. This is a model, okay? That's what this is, a model. But in the model, he says to pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's not Halloween. That's hallowed be thy name first thing that we need to see is Jesus is telling us to pray to the Father. And this is a prescription. So sometimes when people ask me, and and they do from time to time, why do you always pray to the Father? Why do you never pray to the Son? It's because that seems to me to be Jesus' prescription for me, to pray to the Father. And again, I don't think somebody's sinning when they pray to the Son. And they do have one, at least one verse in the Upper Room Discourse that does seem to point to praying toward Jesus. And you could certainly make the case, because of the unity within the Godhead, that a prayer to the Son of the Holy Spirit is certainly not sinful. But I just don't think that's the way it was prescribed. We're to pray to the Father in the name of the Son, that's clear, by means of the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think if we, if we keep with that pattern, with that model, we'll be much closer to God's prescription, then we then we will be if we vary from that. so the first thing we see is that the prayer is directed to the Father. The second thing that we see is it not directed to an earthly Father, it's directed to our heavenly Father, our Father who is in heaven, who art in heaven. and then finally we see this word hallowed. Now the word hallowed is just is a is a term that just means set apart or sacred now the prayer if 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 the word hallowed means nothing to you. I wouldn't pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I would pray something like this. My heavenly Father, you are above everyone in this universe. My Father, the majestic creator of the universe. What's this is of the universe? My Father, my loving, kind, wonderful Father, full of hesed. You know, whatever it, whatever it takes for you to understand that you're speaking to someone special, extremely special. And I think this may be one of the lost things in our prayers that is hurting our prayer life. We're forgetting to whom we're speaking. So sometimes it helps to remind ourselves to whom we're addressing this prayer. This is the creator of the universe, the sovereign God of the universe, a person whose name is set apart. Now, that doesn't just mean that the name Father is set apart. <laughs> this doesn't mean that you fill in your own name set apart. In, in, in this time, the term name referred to the entirety of the person. Hallowed be thy name. Set apart be your name. You are as a person, you are so unique, I don't hardly even have words for you. And you're not going to say that every time. A plane crashed in Libya earlier today. I'm sure the people, if there were believers on the plane that were going down, <coughs> if it happened fast enough, they may have only had time to say, Father, help me. Or they may not even had time to say, Father. They may have just said, Help me, Lord. Anything like that. But there are times when you do have time. I and mean, it's not one of those kind of prayers where in the middle of the intersection and you just see the flash of light coming, knowing that a car is fixing to hit you. But this is, this is a model prayer where Jesus wants us to recognize to whom we are speaking, and that's the significance here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, or your person. The more you know about God, the more you know about his person, then perhaps the more creative your, your addresses to God may be. And again, I'm talking about your own private prayers, not necessarily how you address God in public, although that's certainly a factor as well. So with that in mind, we don't have time to cover the entirety of our Lord's Prayer. You've, you've heard it before, but I wanted to show you in our Lord's Prayer where he does give a what I believe is a prescription, not simply a description. He addresses that prayer to the Father. So it's a good idea for us to do the same. Now turn back over to Paul's letter to the Ephesians as in the few minutes that we have left. Let's look and see again how Paul references this in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So we see Paul is in a position of some intensity and some thoughtfulness recognizing (coughs) from this to whom he is speaking. So Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, some manuscripts add here the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why if you have a New King James with you, uh, that, that those words will be added here. And there is significant debate as to whether or not the phrase of our Lord Jesus Christ is the original reading. But the bottom line is, I hope you'll see, whether Paul said, I bow my knees before the Father or I bow my knees before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the meaning doesn't change. You see that? There's not one. There's not one iota of theological difference there, and so sometimes when when skeptics like to say there are these 200,000, 250,000, 300,000 or more. I'm not sure. Uh, variants in the New Testament. You, say, you guys can't even get it right. Well, these are the types of variants that we're speaking about uh, in in the in most cases. I don't know of anyone that really changes theology at all, and this doesn't either. That's the only reason I bring it up. And if you have a New King James, you may wonder why that extra phrase is in there. Theologians are actually split. Bruce Metzger, the the textual critic, believes that uh, the New American Standard and NIV have the correct reading here. Harold Honer, a textual critic of some uh, import himself, uh, believed that the words of our Lord Jesus Christ should be in there. But all of them recognize that it doesn't change the meaning. I hope you see that. Now, so, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. This last phrase reminds us of God's sovereignty. When I had my children, my wife and I, Cindy and I, got together, and we decided on what the names for the children would be. If the next-door neighbor would have come by and say, hey, listen, I want you to name that boy Daniel, I would probably wonder why in the world that fellow would would think that he would have a right to name my child, because you see, it's my child. <laughs> you see, God has a God has naming rights on all of His creation because it's His creation. So what Paul is recognizing here, before he ever goes into the to the petition of the the prayer itself, he's recognizing to whom he's speaking, and he's also Recognizing the sovereignty of the one that he's speaking to. So, this last phrase in verse 15 reminds us of the sovereignty of God. Because when one creates, one has naming rights. Remember, all the way back in the book of Genesis, God created and then he delegated the naming rights to Adam. But it didn't mean Adam created, those were delegated rights. Well, God is the one who is the creator. Of every family on heaven and on earth. Meaning here that it's not just human beings, but it's angelic beings as well. God is the creator of everything. God created everything outside of himself. Sometimes you'll hear a pantheist, not a theist, but a pantheist say that, that God is in the energy particles of the universe. Well, no. God, God ex- got, sure, in one sense, because of his eminence, he's, he's, he's ever... All present, But he also exists in a transcendent way. That's what Christians mean when we talk about the transcendence of God. He exists outside of his creation as well. So he's created everything on heaven and on, on earth, and that's where we get our name. So here we see in these first two verses, Paul's prayer is respectfully submitted. Respectfully submitted the sovereign creator of the universe, who is our heavenly father. Well, more on this next time as we go into the petition itself.